All right, so for the last few weeks before Snowpocalypse, uh, we've been walking through the story of Joseph, which has been, if you've been paying attention, sort of like a, a master class in the school of suffering. This guy has been through it. We've seen him hated by his brothers, sold into slavery, wrongfully accused of a crime, what we saw two weeks ago, that he didn't commit, and then thrown into prison because of it. And that's where we are today in Genesis chapter 40. And God's been teaching us, just as he's been teaching Joseph, some important themes about suffering. How it shapes our, our character. How God uses, a, uh, uses suffering to make us godly, conform us into the image he wants us to be. How we've learned how God is sovereign over suffering. He is working it together. He's in control of it. Nothing catches him off guard, even our worst struggles. And we've learned that even when we're faithful to God, even when we follow him, we still suffer. No one is free from this. And Genesis 40 this morning is going to zero in on another theme of suffering that we've seen already throughout Joseph's story and we'll continue to see. But I think it really Uh, hones in on this theme in chapter 40, and that is the reality of God's providence in our suffering. Providence. Now, what is providence? That's a a Christian word, and so uh, it, it needs some explaining because even Christians today, we don't use that word a lot. It seems like an old time word that old dead guys would write about when they talked about theology. But it's a good word and it's a good biblical concept. So what is providence? We can say a lot here, but I think John Piper's definition is extremely helpful for us. Listen to what he says. The providence of God is his purposeful sovereignty by which he will be completely successful in the achievement of his ultimate goal for the universe. So not only is God in control over all things, not only is he all-powerful over all things, that's, that's sovereignty, God's total control. But he is also, as a sovereign God, he is also working all of those things together for his good purposes and for the good purposes of his people. That's providence. Do you hear that two word definition? Purposeful sovereignty. Not only is God in control, But he is working everything for a purpose. Now here's the dilemma for for us. There are times in our lives, just like Joseph, when, when the purposes and promises of God and the reality of our experiences seem to be going in opposite directions. Right? We read what God says in his word. We say, here's what God has promised to us. But then we look at our own life. And we say, man, I don't, I don't know that what I'm experiencing matches up with that. That's certainly the case with, with Joseph, right? Remember chapter 37, what happens? He has a dream, a, a divine dream that he is going to rule over his brothers and his father. And then immediately after that dream, he's plunged into 13 years of intense suffering. It seems like the promises of God are going one way and the experiences of life are going another. Right? We've all felt that way. We've, we've looked at God's promises, his truth, and his word, 
We've said, I know he promises to bless me. I know he promises his presence. I know he promises the joy of knowing him, but I just don't feel that way right now. And when I look at my life, it, it seems the complete opposite. This doctrine that Genesis 40 zeroes in on of providence is meant to strengthen the foundation of our faith in those times so that we can say with confidence, God is working. That's what God's purposeful sovereignty is for. And to give you an illustration, Christians in past generations have often used an illustration to help us grasp providence. And I have a slide on on the screen here to show us this. Okay, so if you were to, to look at a watch, take the face off a watch. By the way, this is an authentic Waltham watch. We keep it local here. And it's on, it's on sale on eBay. That's how I found the picture. If you were to look at a watch, take the watch face off, you'll see this sort of intricate set of cogs or gears, right? You see that up at the top. But, but look closely, there's two primary ones, right? Now imagine one of those is your life. That's the, the situations you experience. That's the people you come in contact with. That's the timeline of your life, the way things work out. All of that is, is that one cog, The other cog is all that God has promised to us. We can just sum that up and say, here's what God has said to me that he's going to do and give for me in his word. God's promises, right? Now, here's what happens with a watch. Those two cogs are going in opposite directions, right? One's going left, one's going right. That happens in our life. It seems like they don't fit together. But what happens when those two cogs, those two gears come together? We don't see it, but what we see is the watch face. That's the next slide here. The hour hand, the minute hand, the second hand moves forward according to God's purposes. That is the providence of God in our lives. And that's what we see in Joseph's life, and it's meant to be a foundation for us. Like Joseph, we can't see it. We don't get to see that first slide. We only see the the watch face, right? And we wonder if it's going to move forward. But we can trust, we can have confidence that the wheels are moving just as God intended to. According to his purposeful sovereignty, his providential care, right? So so this is what Genesis Genesis 40 shows us in, in a sentence. God's strange Yet sweet providence is at work in the most unlikely places for our good and for his purposes. His providences are not always understandable. They're strange. Sometimes they're painful, but they're also sweet because we can be confident that he's working. And oftentimes he works in the most unlikely of places, unlikely people, in unlikely ways. And so here's what we're going to see as we walk through Genesis 40 as Joseph's in prison. We're going to see these four ways that God works. First, God works in unlikely places. Second, we'll see that God works through unlikely people. Third, we'll see that God works in unlikely ways. And fourth, we'll see that God works on an unlikely timeline. And all of this is part of his providential plan for our good in his glory. So number one, God works in unlikely places. Look again at verse one of chapter 40. Sometime after this, after he was placed in prison, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. 
And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. And they continued for some time in custody. So remember, Joseph has just been thrown into prison for the wrongful accusation from Potiphar's wife. She claimed, as he was the servant in Potiphar's household, Potiphar's wife claimed that he was trying, Joseph was trying to take advantage of her physically. The opposite was actually true. So he flees, leaves his coat. He's wrongfully accused. He's thrown in prison. Now, the end of chapter 39 says things were going well for him, meaning he was growing into prominence in the prison. But let's remember, it's still prison. In verse 15 of chapter 40, Joseph calls this the pit. So that tells us what Joseph's thinking about his situation. Do you remember the pit Joseph was actually thrown in? When his brothers sold him, uh, tried to fake his death and threw him in the pit? He's, He's understandably discouraged here. It's likely he's thinking, I've been thrown into the pit before by my brothers, and now, just when things are looking up, as I was in Potiphar's house, things were going well for me, just when I was in the place of some prominence, now, here I am, back in the pit. Psalm 105.18 recounts Joseph's imprisonment here. Verse, uh, Verse 18 says, his feet were hurt with fetters, his neck was put in a collar of iron, until that... Until what he had said came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. Joseph's in the pit of prison, in a pit of despair and discouragement. Yet, we see that God's providence is at work even in this unlikely and undesirable place. In in God's providence, who shows up to the prison? Two high-profile prisoners. And one who... And and guess who's appointed to these prisoners? Joseph. The wheels are turning in this unlikely place of God's plan for Joseph's release. Now there's an important lesson for us here about God's providence. Don't underestimate what God can do in unlikely and even undesirable places. This is what we tend to do, isn't it? I love the story of Jesus beginning his ministry and calling Nathanael and Philip to be his disciples. In John chapter 1, verse 43, says, The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. You can can hear Philip's excitement. Nathaniel, we found the Messiah, the promised one that we've been learning about since we were kids. He is here, Jesus. And guess what? He's from Nazareth. And how does Nathaniel respond? Verse 46, Nathaniel said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Translation, Philip. Do you realize how backwoods and redneck Nazareth is? (laughs) No culture comes from there. It's just just a bunch of weirdos out in the wilderness. There's no way God's work, there's no way the promise of the Messiah can come from a place like Nazareth. But Nathaniel was wrong. Jesus did come from Nazareth, right? 
And we do this all the time, don't we? We think God tends to work in the prominent places with the most visibility and popularity and notoriety. Therefore, if I am in a small, forgotten, undesirable place in my life, God must not be working. We think that all of the time. Friends, don't, don't overestimate the places the world values and don't underestimate the places the world despises. The Bible teaches that time and time again, here in an Egyptian prison and also in the the birth of our Savior. We might ask, can anything good come from this boring job? I need to be at the top, right? Can Can anything good come from this home, work in this home? I need to be out changing the world. Can anything good come from this city? This God-forsaken city, get me out of here. Or the opposite, can anything good come from this podunk town? I need to get to the city. See, confidence in God's providential work says God works in all of these unlikely places. Joseph was in the pit of prison in a pagan nation far from his family, yet God's providence was at work and he was faithful in it. And through his faithfulness in this unlikely place, God opened a door. God's word teaches us here to see the strange and mundane and and even undesirable places in your life as the groundwork for God's work. Don't miss here. That doesn't mean there are situations we shouldn't desire to get out of. That's what Joseph does here. But it does mean we can have confidence that God is working in these places. So that's number one. God works in unlikely places. Number two, God works through unlikely people. Look at verse five. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers, who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, we have had dreams, and there is no one to interpret them. Okay, so Joseph is now caring for two high-profile political prisoners who offended their master, Pharaoh. And understanding their work is, is important here. These, it, it's, it's more than just a food services positions, right? Cupbearer and baker. They were in charge of all of the food and drink that Pharaoh would eat himself. So they, they needed to be trusted men. These were trusted positions because they had direct access to the food, which could be and often was poisoned for military coups and takeovers. It was an important position. So we don't know all the details, but something, something fishy happened, and Pharaoh suspects that these guys have something to do with it. So he, he puts them in prison, while he is likely investigating the crimes. And one of these men, the cupbearer, is going to be used by God to secure Joseph's release. The other guy doesn't work out so well. We'll get there in a minute, right? But I want you to think of the unlikely nature of this relationship. Two high-profile Egyptians directly connected to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Thrown in prison... And the, the, the time when Joseph is there, and who is put in charge of caring for them? Joseph. 
the wrongfully accused Hebrew. There is no other way you could bring them together. God is working to bring these men together in an otherwise unlikely interaction. And so while Joseph is acting as their servant, they each have dreams. And we're going to come to the content uh, of those dreams and interpretation in a moment. But notice how Joseph responds in this situation. Notice his concern for them. Verse 6, he saw that they were troubled. Verse 7, so he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in the master's house, why are your faces downcast today? See, if we're, not, if we're not careful, when we're in difficult circumstances where it's hard to see God at work, when we experience those in our lives, we can turn so inward that we miss the opportunity to love, serve, and bless those who are right in front of us. Right? And Joseph doesn't do that. None of us would blame him for doing that. If, if he said, listen, I'll take care of your physical needs because that's my job, but why should I care that these guys are downcast? In fact, they, prob- they did something. They actually committed it a crime. Here I am. I'm the innocent one. I don't, I don't deserve to be in here. I don't care about their, their dreams. But the school of affliction has taught Joseph to pay attention to how the Lord may be working. Even in the lives of others. In fact, the word he, he later uses in verse 15 when he, when he asks the cupbearer to remember him, to describe his kindness toward the cupbearer, is the Hebrew word chesed. Kindness. Loyal, covenant love and kindness. It's, it's as if Joseph has learned this lesson, right? As God has loved and shown me kindness, even through these 11 years of suffering, now I am showing you kindness by reaching out to you in your suffering. So these men have dreams to be interpreted. Joseph reaches out to them. And as, as Egyptians, there would have been, in the palace of Pharaoh, people far more likely to interpret these dreams than Joseph. The Egyptians put a lot of stock into dream interpretation as, as a way to tell the future. And we'll actually meet some of these, these men next week in chapter 41, these magicians. But because they were imprisoned, the cupbearer and the baker didn't have access to these so-called dream interpreters. So who did they have access to? In God's providence, Joseph. So he becomes this unlikely conduit of help to these men as he's about to interpret their dreams. And these men become an unlikely opportunity for Joseph to get out of prison. You see how God is working? It's incredible. So I think this teaches us a, an important lesson. To always look at others with God's providence in mind. Right? Joseph never would have said, you know what I need to get out of here? I need to talk to a cupbearer. Or a baker. He never would have planned it that way. And the cupbearer never would have said, you know what I need to understand this dream? I need a Hebrew kid. Do we have any of those around here? Never, never would have planned it this way. But God works through unlikely people to accomplish his purposes. When we look at others with both God's heart and his providence in mind, we're going to become more aware of the ways and more willing of the ways to engage them in love, just as Joseph does here with these men. And notice he doesn't have an agenda. He's not thinking, these guys are my, the step in the ladder of getting out, 
out of here. He's simply present and faithful and caring. See, friends, if God is sovereign, and he is, then every person put in your path is a part of God's providential plan. Every single person. So so determine by God's grace to be a conduit of blessing to your family, to your coworkers, to strangers, to, to friends, to even, friends, even enemies. Even the most unlikely of people. But this also teaches us a, how to look at our own selves with God's providence in mind, right? Oftentimes, the way we talk to ourselves completely ignores the power of God's providential working through us, right? I'm not very important. I don't really think I can do much for God's kingdom. I don't know that God could use me in that way. Friends, if there's any more unlikely place in person, it would be Joseph in in an Egyptian prison to say it's all over. But, But God's working. Christian, you're made in the image of God. You're redeemed by the blood of his son. And you're called out of darkness into light so that you may proclaim the excellencies of his kingdom. So you, you may display and declare the gospel to those around you. So determine by God's grace to not only be a conduit of blessing, but also to view your own life, every interaction, under the lens of God's providence. Replace that self-talk that we're all tempted to say to ourselves, I'm useless, I don't know that God can use me. Replace it with what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And that's what God's doing in Joseph right now, and that's what he does in our lives as well. God works through unlikely people. Number three, God works in unlikely ways. This is where we get to the dream. Verse 8. And Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God. Please tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream there was a vine before me. And on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand. I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup into Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, This is the interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. And there were three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. Side note, when birds are eating stuff, it's not a good sign in the Bible. And Joseph answered and said, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. I want you to notice something. The first thing Joseph says 
is that he exhibits faithfulness and confidence in God. Do not interpretations belong to God. God will reveal these to you. Now consider the importance of dreams in Joseph's story. Joseph had two dreams that started this whole thing in chapter 37. There's two dreams here, and we'll see two more dreams in the next chapter as he is released. The dreams of Pharaoh. We may think that Joseph didn't want to mess around with dreams anymore after what happened last time, right? Listen, the last time I talked about dreams, I ended up in a pit, sold into slavery, far away from my family. But, but that's not how Joseph responds. He's convinced. He doesn't say, you know what, talk to one of your Egyptian magicians. Because he's convinced that God is somehow providential, providentially working here. So God, that God will reveal to him what these dreams mean. So he does just that and he tells them. And they're very straightforward dreams and interpretations. The cupbearer is going to be restored to his position in three days. Then Joseph asks the cupbearer to remember him when he's restored. And the baker thinks, all right, this is pretty good. My buddy, the cupbearer, got good news. So now I'm going to go with, with, with Joseph and, and see what this whole thing means and Joseph's like uh sorry buddy you're gonna die in three days you're going to die which probably means that the cupbearer was innocent in whatever investigation was happening from Pharaoh and the baker was at fault or at least accused of this now what is the lesson here for us is it let's go out and all become dream interpreters it is not that (laughs) I think we have to note Two important things about dream interpretation here. First, Joseph directly attributes the power of interpretation to God. He doesn't say, oh, that's great. I happen to be a dream interpreter. That's my job. No, he doesn't say that. He says, do not interpretations belong to God. He sees the sovereign providential work of God over all of this. He's attributing all the glory to God. He's not claiming some supernatural gift of interpretation. He's just claiming confidence in God. Second, as we talk about dreams, this is at a point in the history of redemption when there is no written word of God. No Moses, no law, no prophets, no writings, and of course no New Testament. So this this hasn't been written yet. So, as the author of Hebrews tells us, God spoke in in various ways, including through dreams that he then interpreted. So I think it's worth a discussion here to say, okay then, how then does God speak to us? This is such an important question for us. The answer is simple. God speaks to his people through Christ and through the word. Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago and many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God. We also see in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture, the word of God, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So this is so important for us. If an, an unhealthy application of this text would be, you know what, I need more dreams to know what God wants. If we want to hear God speak, We must look to Christ, the Word made flesh, and to the Scriptures, the Word of God. Now, don't mishear me. 
Can God prompt us through dreams? Of course. Isn't that what we're saying? Aren't we saying that God is sovereign over everything? This is my father's world, as the hymn says. Cannot God providentially use those promptings through dreams or, or elsewhere? Absolutely he can. But those promptings, whether in dreams or from anywhere else, must always align with and be tested against the word of God. Okay? So then, if that's the case, what's the lesson for us in the dreams? I think this is it. As God's people... We must be attentive to the seemingly unlikely ways that God is working. Do do you notice that? Joseph is attentive to it. He hears dreams and he doesn't think that's weird. He he, he hears dreams and he doesn't think, you know what, I don't want to mess around with those anymore. He hears dreams and immediately thinks interpretation belongs to God. My God is sovereign and providential. He could be working through this. So I want to be attentive. So what are, what are some examples of seemingly unlikely ways that God would work his providential purposes in our life and in our world? Let me just give you a few. First, the unlikely way of his word, the Bible. It seems strange and unlikely to the world around us that an ancient book would accomplish anything meaningful, right? But this is God-breathed, living and active Word of God to us, and it is sufficient for life in godliness. Lives have been transformed by this book. Nations have been revived because of this book. But it's strange, isn't it, to come together week in and week out and open an old book and talk about it? It's strange unless the Spirit of God is in us. And we say this isn't just an ancient book. This is God's way of transforming his people. This is God's way of building his church. It's an unlikely way to the world, but it's his way. So we commit our lives to hearing the word of God preached, to knowing it, to treasuring it, to conforming our lives to it, however mundane and out of step with the world this book may seem. Another unlikely way is the way of prayer. Now many think prayer is at odds with the providence of God. If God is providentially working, then why do I need to pray? Friends, it's not. It's another cog that he uses for his purposes. And the world scoffs at our our praying, right? Since you're just talking to the ceiling. Anytime there's a tragedy and Christians say, let's pray for this, you'll hear naysayers say how useless it is to talk to the sky. But it is one of God's most precious means of working his providential plan. James 5 says the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months it did not rain on earth. Then he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. So friends, if we want to see God work in unlikely ways, we must be a people committed to fervent prayer. And then a a third one is the unlikely way of the church. God works in the unlikely way of his people, the church. Who is the church? Here's the definition we've used for several years now. The people of God, filled with the presence of God, set apart for the purposes of God in the world. What do we do? We gather 
We sing, we pray, we hear the word, we take the Lord's Supper, we baptize, and then we scatter to show and share the gospel. It's really simple. We're not looking for political clout. We're not looking for cultural influence. We're not trying to build something around any one person other than the person of Jesus Christ. This kind of business plan that is the church looks silly to the world and unlikely to see. But here we are, gathering on a Sunday morning, worshiping King Jesus. And the church has been moving forward since Christ inaugurated it. Unlikely to the world, but a key part of God's providential working. As Paul says in Ephesians 3, the church, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God is made known to rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Friends, God works, and there's so many more. That's just three of them, the word, prayer, the church. He works through unlikely, seemingly ordinary means to accomplish his extraordinary purposes. This is true in Joseph's life, the dream, and it's true in our lives as well. And then fourth and finally, God works on an unlikely timeline. So we have places, people, ways, and time. Verse 20, on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, happy birthday, Pharaoh, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hands, but he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph but forgot him. And listen to chapter 41, verse 1. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. So the events happen. The interpretations happen just as Joseph said they would. The cupbearers restored. The baker is killed, which, by the way, is the, the strangest birthday party I've ever heard of. Um, and we can imagine here this anticipation from Joseph, Right? God interpreted the dream. He's restored just God, just as you said he would. And he's sitting there waiting and hoping that the cupbearer would help him get out of prison. Remember Pharaoh for me so I can get out of here. This is it. This is my chance. But he forgets Joseph. And he stays two more years in the pit of prison. Can you imagine the disappointment and the heartache and the temptation to lose faith in God as you wait. God, your promises seem to be turning one way, and the circumstances of my life are once again going in the opposite direction. By the time Joseph gets out of prison, it's 13 years since he was thrown in that pit by his brothers. 13 years of these little glimpses of restoration, hopes that are immediately dashed by more suffering. Joseph says, I've been forgotten. But God has not forgotten Joseph. He is working, and he's working on a perfect timeline. Think about this. If the cupbearer had remembered him sooner, it's likely that he would not have been around, Joseph would not would have been around to interpret Pharaoh's dreams in chapter 41. And if Joseph was gone and Pharaoh was left to his incompetent magicians who weren't filled with the presence of God, there would be no preparation for the famine that was to come. And if there's no preparation for the famine that's to come, God's family, Jacob and his sons, 
Joseph's father and brothers, would not have survived. And if they would not have survived, the line of salvation through which Christ the Savior came would have been cut off completely. God's timing is perfect. Charles Spurgeon said, God's providence is always on time. You and I make appointments and miss them by half an hour. But God has never missed an appointment yet. God is never early, though we often wish he were. It's Joseph here, right? But he is never late. No, not by one tick of the clock. Friends, I don't know all the experiences of of your life or what you're going through right now. Some of you I do. But what I do know is if you've walked with Jesus for any length of time, you know the painful silence of waiting on God. You say with David in Psalm 13, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long will the physical ailments last? How long will I feel aimless in my life? How long until this season of suffering ends? How long will I struggle with this besetting sin? What is God doing in this season of waiting? And what makes it even harder is, friend, that it is very unlikely that you will get answers to those questions this side of heaven. No one can promise you that. You may, see one, you may look back on your life and see one or two things God was doing in a certain situation, but you'll always have questions. Because we can't take the face of the watch off, as it were, and peer into the cogs of God's secret will. But we can know without a shadow of a doubt that God is working in our waiting. How reassuring, how comforting. See, for the last 13 years, God has been preparing Joseph to interpret dreams for Pharaoh. By cultivating patience and wisdom in him that he will need as he leads a nation. He didn't have that when he was 17. God's been softening his heart through suffering so that he'll one day be prepared to meet his suffering brothers with the heart of mercy. Leading him through plenty and famine so he could one day be prepared to lead others through plenty and famine. All the while, you know there were moments when he wondered, is all of this waiting just useless? 13 years of nothing. But one day he looked back on his life and he saw the purposeful sovereignty of God in the most unlikely ways all over his life. Church, this is the story of the Bible, and it's meant to cultivate a patient trust in us. Listen to what Pastor Mark Dever says on this. He says, if you're tempted to think that something, if something is slow, it must not be urgent or fruitful or even important, I would ask you to remember the biblical pattern. God calls Noah to work for years. He gave Abram a promise that takes decades to come to fruition. How long did Hannah pray for a child or Ruth for a husband? What did they learn during those years? God's promised deliverance for Israelites exiled in Babylon stretched out for decades. The coming Messiah took centuries to come to pass. How long had Simeon been waiting in the temple for the consolation of Israel? But God was not less faithful for all of that. And obedience to him was no less urgent. Even once Christ came into the world, it took us 30 years before we heard much from him. The fulfilling of the Great Commission has been going on for centuries and will go on until Christ returns because it continues in force to the end 
of the age. Friends, God is working in our waiting. And while we see this pattern all over the Bible in our own lives, the clearest testimony of God working in these unlikely ways and places and people in time is a place we should continually fix our eyes, and that's the cross of Jesus Christ. Calvary is where the cogs of God's promises and the unlikely events of life come together to bring salvation to the world. Think about it. Is there, is there a more unlikely place to bring salvation than a hilltop where criminals are killed? Where Jesus stood before two criminals, much like Joseph. One guilty, one innocent, much like Joseph. Is there a more unlikely person than an unattractive carpenter's son, according to the prophet Isaiah, born in a stable, raised in the no-name podunk town of Nazareth. There's no more unlikely person than him. Is there a more unlikely way to bring about victory and salvation than by a gruesome, agonizing death on a cross? Is there a more unlikely time for, for Jesus to die only three years into his ministry, 33 years of age at the height of his popularity? To his followers, the death of Christ must have seemed like no good can come from this. Then three days later, he ascended from the pit of death. Securing eternal salvation, life everlasting for all who trust in him. Friend, if you've yet to trust in Christ, can I just plead with you to do so now? For those, for those who reject him, the end result is just judgment for your sin. But for those who trust in him, the fatherly providence of God is working together for your good. And Do you know what else this means, Christian? This means that as you are walking through those bitter providence in your life, Jesus knows exactly what it's like. He is able to sympathize with you in your weakness. How comforting to us. And one day, all of the bitterness, we'll look back. And we'll see the, how the cogs came together. And all of those bitter providences will turn sweet when we see how our loving God has worked it all according to his purposes in our good. Church, God's strange providence is at work for our good and for his purposes. So let's, let's cling to this truth. Shown to us in the life of Joseph, displayed fully at the cross of Christ. And when we hold on to it, we will be ready to walk through the ups and downs of life, attentive to his ways, and ready to join his work, even in the most unlikely places. Let's pray together.